morning. I will ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 15. We're going to look this morning at the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 15. And so once you're there, then I'll ask, as always, if you would stand as we read God's Word. And these are the inerrant words of a holy God. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And when he called the people to him and said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will both fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And you may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. So again, as we've gone along in the storyline here in the Gospel of Matthew, we've just remembered that just recently, Christ and his disciples have had their difficult night at sea, and they crossed over to Gennesaret, where many were healed by touching Christ's robe. And so like the children of Israel, departing Egypt in a hurry and being saved at sea in the final watch of the night by God, so now Christ, the true Israel, and his disciples depart Bethsaida in a hurry and reenact a similar salvation at sea story that we saw last week. And so remember, the volatility of the situation continues to grow, and it's growing from several angles. First of all, from the Roman side, Herod Antipas is paranoid of John the Baptist, and he thinks Jesus is John the Baptist resurrected. He's paranoid about this, uh, and he wants to kill this John the Baptist 2.0. But then there's also tension coming from the Jewish leaders. These people were desiring... Uh, or the people that Jesus was ministering to, not the leaders, but the people that he was ministering to wanted to make Jesus a crowned king and a political ruler. And this, of course, caught the attention of the powers that be. And so there's also increasing tension with the Jewish leaders. And so this last point of tension has got Israel in a buzz. And now word has gone through the land and Christ and the disciples get visitors in this chapter. Verses 1 and 2 says that then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And so keep in mind, these aren't just any visitors. These are the top-ranking Pharisees from the most important city in Israel, from Jerusalem. So this is denominational headquarters being on alert 
we've got a church discipline situation, we better head out. So the top brass leave Jerusalem and go examine what's going on with this Jesus fellow and his followers. Okay, remember the Pharisees were not necessarily priests, they were mostly businessmen who were wealthy enough to own books and to exert cultural influence. So in today's setting we would say Pharisees weren't maybe so much the, the preachers and the elders, although they may have had people placed in those positions, they're more like the businessman in the church who everyone knows is a wealthy donor and owns the elders and the ministers. That's the kind of men that the Pharisees were. They owned uh, the clerics, they owned uh, the priests. And the scribes were those who were dedicated to copying and studying the scriptures. And so this is a pretty significant delegation that has come up to see Jesus and the disciples from Jerusalem. These are weighty people. And they start their examination of Jesus immediately. Specifically, why are you breaking the commandment or the tradition of the elders, which was to wash your hands before you eat? And if you go back and you read the ceremonial law of Moses in the Old Testament, there are in fact many kinds of washing and cleansing ceremonies in the Old Testament. But these apply especially, or mostly, or almost exclusively, to the priests as they perform worship. There's no law that was requiring, there's nowhere in Scripture that was requiring people to wash their hands before they eat. And of course, washing your hands before you eat is certainly permissible, and we might even say it's commendable, it's sanitary, it's good, it's a good idea. But it's not a matter of religious conscience, as these people made it seem. So rather, what these Pharisees were pressing Jesus on was an oral tradition. Some of you may have heard of the Jewish Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of the Jewish people that was finally committed uh, to print in about the year 200 or so. So this is an oral tradition. This is not the law of Moses. This is not the law of God that they're trying to enforce. It's an oral tradition uh, that has been handed down to them. And because of the nature of legalism and of the human heart, our man-made traditions frequently get elevated above the actual law of God. And no one here is immune from that impulse. In verses 3 and 6, it goes on, it says, He answered them, and Jesus says, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother what you have, would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Many of you know I enjoy teaching apologetics, and I had the great honor of doing it this winter semester, and I get to do it again this coming semester. And the approach that I like to teach is called presuppositional apologetics. Uh, and basically, this method of apologetics refuses to pretend that the person you're talking to is morally neutral. Okay? Uh, the Bible never presents it that way. Uh, a, a common approach to apologetics today just pretends like we're all morally neutral, and with enough evidence or enough reason, people will just be compelled and they'll become Christians. And that's not the way the Bible describes it at all. I do believe that this presuppositional approach is weapons-grade apologetics because it goes all the way down to the foundation. It exposes our assumptions and our rock-level presuppositions that we carry with us wherever we go. And so it goes deeper than just trying to pretend like we're neutral and evidence will convince when it will not. Presuppositionalism asks, how do you know what you know? How do you test it? By what standard? What's your ultimate authority? It's trying to expose those ultimate authority issues, and that's exactly what Jesus does in these kind of exchanges. He uses exactly this approach. So rather than accepting the assumptions of those who come to challenge him, he just pulls the rug out from under them and turns the table and takes control of the conversation. 
He refuses to play by their rules. He refuses to make some minor adjustments to try to appease those who are criticizing him. Rather, he confronts them with the fact that they are not bending the knee to the Lord themselves. So again, instead of making excuses or apologies or exceptions why his followers were not washing their hands in this instance, he goes straight to the law of God and shows its superior quality to their oral traditions. And so he turns the table when he asks, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Okay, so this is like the Uno reverse card. It's a very pointed question. Christ has asserted his authority in this instance and instantly moves the Pharisees from playing offense to now they're on the defense. That's how Jesus does apologetics. And in this particular instance, Jesus is confronting them with a practice that was common in the time among uh, the Pharisees called Korban. And maybe you've heard that in Mark's account of this uh, exchange in Mark 7:11, he calls it Korban. And what is that? Well, Simply put, in this arrangement, a man would pledge his wealth to the temple. So saying, you know, I've built up this estate, I'm a, I'm a wealthy man, uh, and so when I die, my estate is going to the temple. Meaning, if that's a pledge, and the Pharisees honored it, that means that I am now, I've made a vow to give everything I have to the temple. That means when one of you comes and asks me for help, I can very piously hide behind my temple oath that I can't help you. I'd really like to. I'd really love to help you. But because of my great deep piety, I am indebted to uh, offer everything I have to God, to the temple, so to speak. So this is a very pious way of getting out of Christian charity. Okay? This means that you don't have to give your money to someone else or else you would be breaking this vow. And it's not hard to see how self-serving this is because this applies to money you would give to other people, in this case, uh, to help your aging parents. Because your life can continue to go on, right? When you take your kids to Disney World, you're, that's money you need to live. That's, it, it costs you nothing to make this vow, to say, after I'm gone, after I'm dead, and I've used all my money on myself, then the temple will get what's left over. It really costs nothing to make this vow, or at least very little. So this is just a pious-looking way of getting out of generosity. And, predictably, the religious leaders actually allowed this vow, as an excuse to get out of providing for your elderly parents. And we know today and in the biblical conception of the world, to a large degree, a person's wealth is their children. And in older societies especially, that relied on agriculture, on physical manual labor, uh, this was very evident, that a man's wealth is, in fact, his children and your grandchildren. And I think this fits with God's design for the family. We, uh, we get married, we give our young years to little babies who are crying and need all the energy that we can muster. We give our 20s and maybe part of our 30s to that. Uh, and as they get more independent and we start to get tired in our 40s, our kids can drive themselves and they can start doing their own things. Uh, and finally, they go out and establish their own home. And we still have some energy left, let's say in our 50s and 60s, to help our aging parents across the finish line. God designed it this way, and these people are trying to get out of it, and the Pharisees are giving them cover to get out of it. So this is the way it was designed in creation for families to work. We see it in the law of Moses, an obligation sons have to their parents, and Jesus goes right to the Ten Commandments to establish his case. In verse 4, Jesus quotes the fifth commandment, from Exodus 20, verse 12. And this commandment promises a blessing for obedience. You will have long life in the land if you do this. 
And so one way of honoring your father and mother is to care for them in their sunset years. And then Christ goes on and makes a case law or an actual application of the fifth commandment from Exodus 21.17, which clearly states that whoever reviles their father and mother must die. Okay? It's a capital offense to dishonor your parents. Serious business. God must, and, and again, the modern impulse is that doesn't jive with our priorities and our culture so we can all go, ha, ha, ha. Can you believe people thought that in the Old Testament? No, no. This is how serious it is to God, to revile your parents. It's a capital offense. It's that serious. Let's learn from that. But notice the logic of this exchange here. The Pharisees and the scribes come walking in and they complain about Christ and the disciples disregarding their particular application of the fifth commandment because they're not washing their hands before eating. They're saying, well, this is the tradition of the elders. You're dishonoring your father and mother, Jesus, when you don't wash your hands and make your followers wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus points out that the general rule about hand washing wasn't actually in the law. It's an oral tradition. It's not actually the law of the fathers. And then he uses their own standard to convict them. This is the way he turns the argument on it. He says, in essence, you guys are pretending. You're playing the charade. You're pretending to be so concerned about honoring your elders. But we're not actually violating the law of our elders in any way, shape, or form. This isn't actually in the law of our fathers. It's not in the law of Moses. And yet here you guys are complaining to us about our fifth commandment violation. And you're the ones who give cover to other people who are committing a capital crime. You people have this completely backwards. You are guilty of a capital crime and you're giving other people cover. We're not doing anything wrong and you're criticizing us. Jesus completely turns this around. The sin that you're accusing us of isn't even a sin biblically defined. And you're giving cover for a capital crime. What's wrong with you people? Okay? Jesus completely turns this on its head. And what these people have done is elevating a non-biblical oral tradition above the words of actual scripture. And they are so blinded by their tradition that they accuse Jesus and they probably actually think they're in the right. And the most audacious thing then and now, let's make application to this about ourselves as well. The most audacious thing about pride and self-righteousness is that there is a pattern that I think I have observed of the people who are the most proud and the most self-righteous actually have the least to be proud about. Has anyone noticed that? The most complacent people have very little to be complacent about. Okay? But they somehow amazingly tend to have the most uh, assurance in themselves. It's almost like blindness sets in and a person loses all sense of proportion or self-awareness. And yet we do this all the time. People criticize others for the very things that are most obviously deficient in their own life. You know, for example, the guy who's been through however many women and mistreats them all and he finds out about Christians like us who kind of have a conservative view and he's deeply concerned about the way you conservative Christians treat your women, right? That guy is the guy who's concerned about us, right? Or, uh, you know, every time some, from our standpoint, something positive happens in the world of legislation or abortion or, or so forth, feminists are going to pull out their handsmade tale stories and their costumes and they do these somber marches about patriarchy. And yet look at the world they've created in which two sodomite men can rent the womb of a woman just to produce a baby so they can pretend to have a family. Okay? Patriarchy is inevitable. 
we marry our women, they just rent a womb from a woman, okay? And they're doing this handsmaid tale thing about us, okay? People are so blind that they are far more egregiously breaking God's law when they criticize others. Unbelievers make fun of us Christians for trusting the Bible. After all, it's just a, it's just a book made, written by men. How can you trust it? And they learned that in their university so- sociology class from a man. Okay? Let's have some self-awareness. But in the church, there is no short supply of this kind of thing either. And we all come from different traditions. So this is a self-reflective thing. Don't think of others. Think of yourselves. How many sins did you grow up knowing about that are nowhere mentioned in the Bible and yet have become very important to people? And yet often these people that make up these sins are just as guilty of slander or gossip or fits of rage or whatever. But think, who remembers when rook cards were okay to play because other cards were demonic? Anyone remember that? (laughs) Okay. Anyone remember when girls having earrings was sinful? That was a bad one, right? Right? What about having a glass of wine at a wedding? That's really bad. There's one story in church history that I uh, kind of enjoy. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was not, by any sense, uh, an addicted smoker, but Sunday evenings after preaching, he enjoyed smoking a cigar, and he said to the glory of God, he enjoyed nothing more than to sit on his porch on Sunday evening uh, and reflect on the day with a cigar in his mouth. And one morning, some of his seminary students came up to his house to pick him up to go somewhere, and they were both working on a cigar when they got there. And he said, young men, are you not ashamed to be smoking a cigar this early in the morning? And they both kind of sheepishly put their cigar out and back in their pocket. He pulled his out and lit it up. He said, I never said you should. I just asked if you weren't. (laughs) Provided it's not addictive, provided it's not habitual, he's all right. But the interesting thing is he got criticized for that by one particular minister who was morbidly obese, okay, from gluttony. And Spurgeon's attitude was, you know, Mr. So-and-so, when you put, I'll put down my cigar when you put down your fork because your sin is actually in the Bible. Gluttony's actually listed as a sin. The Bible says nothing about my Sunday evening cigar. That's not a sin that the Bible says is a sin. Yours is, and yet you're the one criticizing me while you are a glutton. Okay? And I'm not making excuse for addictive behavior. Of course, that's sinful. The biblical standard is sobriety. I'm illustrating the point that sometimes our man-made traditions get elevated above what the Bible actually says is actual sins that we leave unaddressed because we treat them as respectable. But Christ is not happy to just make his point and leave it there. He decides instead to bury the knife a little deeper and then give it a good half twist once he started In verse 9 and 10, he says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus calls them hypocrites, meaning that they fail even by their own standard. They've made a superficial appeal to Scripture, and Jesus shows them the sin which bothered them so much, wasn't even a sin that the Bible says is a sin. And worse yet, actual sins that the Bible actually condemns are getting a pass from these very guys. And then Jesus offers an almost word-for-word quote from Isaiah 29, 13, but it also finds echoes in Ezekiel 33, 31, which says, And they come to you as people come, 
and they sit before you as my people, and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. We can all think of these people that know the Christian jargon. They maybe show up on Sunday morning. Right? You talk to them, and they're probably a little greasy, and you can kind of feel that they're just finessing this. They know all the jargon. They know how to talk around people like you or me. But their hearts are far from God. They just happen to know the vocabulary. Okay? And knowing the vocabulary, knowing how to smooth talk, is not the Christian faith. Okay? Their hearts are far from the Lord. And they sit Sunday morning pretending like they're Christians, and they are not. Let's take that to heart. Is your mouth full of flattery and pious words when someone from church is around, but you're living a different life outside of here? You're guilty like these people. Let's not be like that. Let's be people whose hearts are close to the Lord. Jesus is painting here a picture of religious people who know how to go through the motions and talk a good game, but in the end, they trust their own instincts and they trust their own man-made traditions more than they trust the Word of God. So, is Jesus teaching here that tradition is bad? And I will say, I do not believe so. Scripture talks about tradition both positively and negatively. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 2 says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And finally, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. So how do we square this? How do we put this all together? You know, Jesus is here seemingly criticizing tradition, and Paul's saying tradition is good. What's... What's going on here? And I think we just have to be honest. Tradition is inevitable. If you live for more than one day, you have patterns, you have traditions in your life, and that's just inevitable. It's not good or bad. It just is a fact of being a human. We must have customs for our lives to work. The key, however, is to be thoughtful and intentional about our customs. Are they explained and understood to help us better understand and obey the Word of God? So are our traditions in service of Christian obedience, or... Are they mere rituals that we perform without thinking? We just go through it because that's just what we do and there's no thought, there's no heart in it whatsoever. Or worse yet, and this can also happen, do our traditions actually keep us? Do they prevent us from seeing the Word of God? And I want to say all of the above are possible. And we all have to recognize that we have traditions. Everyone in this room has a tradition. There is, and there's no more person that is more blind to their tradition than the person who says, I have no tradition. Okay? I have no tradition is your tradition, and it's a particularly bad one. Okay? Everyone has a tradition. It's just a fact of living. We can't avoid that. Let's be thoughtful about it. Part of the problem with not being aware that we have traditions is that the person who thinks he has no tradition just assumes that whatever he thinks is in the Bible. And so these people cannot be corrected because they just conflate their tradition and the Bible. So and if their tradition, if they think that's biblical, they can't ever be corrected because they, they don't see the difference between tradition and Scripture. And so it's an especially blinding thing to not be aware that we have a tradition. All of us were given answers to questions when we were six or eight years old that we just accepted at the time. And now when you're my age, well, I know, I know that's true because that's what my mom told me when I was six. Okay, is it possible she was wrong? Is it possible your uncle who told you something was wrong? 
Okay, let's examine that. Just because somebody told you something when you were small doesn't make it right. Okay, sometimes we have to relearn things. And God be praised that he is merciful and is willing to teach us new things. And one of the things I love about this church in particular is that we are not all from one culture or one church tradition. We have various flavors of ethnic and church backgrounds in this church, and that provides a wonderful opportunity for us to learn about church history, about various practices and traditions, and most importantly, to lay them all down at the feet of King Jesus. And that's the most important part. Are you willing to lay your traditions down at the feet of King Jesus? And when we do that, we probably recognize that some of our traditions are best left in the past. We don't need to go there again. Some may be useful, but they probably need to be explained so that they bring a fresh vigor. And some, I would suggest, are very necessary for our spiritual health. You know, and, and I was just thinking, well, how, how deep does this go? In quite a ways. Think of your table of contents in your Bible. That table of contents is not the inspired word of God. It contains the inspired word of God. Could you order the books differently? Well, theoretically, yes. But think of the chaos that would ensue if all of us had a different ordering of the books in our Bible. It's good that we have a common tradition. You know where to open your Bible to when we look at Matthew, for example. That's a tradition, and it's a helpful one. Imagine if one Sunday service we didn't pray at all, or no scripture was read, but we did a two-hour academic lecture, and then the next Sunday we started at a different time, and we had a five-minute devotional and uh, three hours of music. It would be chaos. That would not be helpful. So tradition uh, helps. The Bible doesn't give us a precise practice for what time church needs to start or, and all those things, but there is a certain comfort if we know how rhythms work. C.S. Lewis talks about liturgy as being a comfortable slipper. Okay, it's, may, it's maybe like a ref at a hockey game. The better he's doing his job, the less everyone notices him. Okay? We just know there's a certain rhythm to our worship, and we need to be intentional about thinking about it, but we also need to be able to distinguish what's our tradition and what is the Word of God. And people who think that a concept like liturgy or covenant renewal worship or something like that is dry and dusty also have a liturgy. Have you ever noticed that non-liturgical churches, the worship service is always identical every single Sunday? <laughs> okay? It's always a four-song four sandwich. It always looks the same. They have a liturgy. It's just no one's really thought about it. Okay? We want to be intentional about what we do. And as a church, we want to be also intentional about thinking through the ancient Christian faith. We subscribe to creeds and to confessions in this church. That's a tradition. Is that positive or negative? Well, and I want to say it's positive if we understand what we're doing. And it's negative if we're just going through the motions. Creeds and confessions aren't meant to stand above Scripture, but to summarize Scripture accurately to keep us out of ditches that Christians have historically gotten into. They serve as guardrails. They're helpful if we understand what they're meant to do. And again, the tradition of saying, I have no creed but Christ, is itself a tradition, and it's a very destructive one, because that just means you're setting yourself up, and your children, and your grandchildren up, for new, unbiblical traditions. And the unbiblical tradition of these Pharisees got there as people gradually, slowly but surely, pulled away from the law of Moses and started inventing their own extra-biblical beliefs. And this can happen to us, too, if we are not watchful and intentional about keeping Scripture at the top, always testing things according to Scripture. Our ideas always start to eclipse the Bible, if we're not careful, because our, our own ideas always seem more exciting, more fresh, more new, and more compelling than the Bible does. Because after all, my traditions come from in here. And you know what? If you live in here with me, you'll find out that the most interesting person in the entire world is this guy right here. 
and that's true 8 billion times over the world. Okay? We always love ourselves if we're not careful. So our own traditions are always going to eclipse the gospel if we are not careful. I heard a sermon, this was a number of years back, about prayer. And the minister went through, you know, different types of prayer that are mentioned in the Bible. You know, there's confession of sin, and there's thanksgiving, and there's supplication, and, and there's adoration, and all these things. But the most important prayer, and this launched into a whole preaching series, is listening prayer. I'm thinking, that's the only one that you just mentioned that's not in the Bible at all. And now, it's the most important. See how this works? <laughs> Something that's not even in the Bible, by name or by concept, becomes the most important thing. And now we're launching a whole church ministry series based on an unbiblical tradition. And that doesn't seem like a tradition because it's new and exciting and it's fresh and, there's a, and it's all well-marketed and stuff. But guess what? The old dusty traditions of today are the new and exciting traditions of 100 years ago. Okay? So our new exciting traditions are just setting up to be the dry, dusty, unexamined traditions of the future if we're not careful. We need to be careful. So again, traditions are good insofar as they're understood and explained and are clearly designed to serve Scripture, not to stand above it, but to serve Scripture. And I've quoted before uh, from an Eastern European theologian by the name of Yaroslav Pelikan, a particularly thoughtful and pithy way of uh, summarizing this, is that tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. If you're just a traditionalist, the living dead can be in church with us, just going through the motions. But if you understand the tradition, if you're willing to embrace the great big capital T tradition of the great Christian story of the past, that is those dead saints living today through us. So tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And, I may add, it is traditionalism which gives tradition such a bad name. So, are we all careful to make distinctions between what God's word actually says and what are the mere commandments of men? Sometimes human wisdom may be helpful, sometimes it may serve us well, but it cannot be treated as eternally binding like the word of God is. And you'll notice how this plays out. Has anyone ever been curious about the fact that when Paul is training two younger pastors, Timothy and Titus in particular, he gives very different orders for them how to treat circumcision. Has anyone ever noticed that? He tells Timothy, yeah, you should be circumcised. You're going to minister to these group of people. I think it would be a really good idea for you to get circumcised. You know, become as all men to these people. You're going to minister to them. You have that in common. Go do it. And then Titus comes along and Paul says, absolutely not. Do not get circumcised. Well, what's the difference? The difference is, these guys are saying you must be circumcised to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? That means it's not even on the table. This is not up for discussion. You may not comply. Okay? It's not just that you don't have to comply. You are ordered not to comply with their extra-biblical commands because that's just going to feed the dead traditionalism of these people. Okay? So there's no contradiction in saying, do this over here because no one's demanding it. It's just contextually helpful. Absolutely do not do this over here. Why? Well, because somebody ordered you to. Now you must not. You do not have permission to comply with those extra-biblical, legalistic demands. Then it goes on, verse 10 and 14. It says, And he called the people to him, and he said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. 
Then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? I chuckled at that when I read this. <laughs> Jesus, you're making these people upset. Yeah, that's actually kind of the point. And he answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And so remember, this whole controversy is kicked off about washing and food laws. And now Jesus explains what's behind the whole thing. He's clear that food and drink are just that. They're just food and drink. That's all they are. And that matches what Paul says in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the Pharisees and scribes were consumed with the externals so that they failed to understand the principles that were underneath. And this is like a, an illustration I've given before. You know, these people know everything about the law except for what it means. Other than that, they've got it nailed. Okay? And this is common today too, and you see it in much evangelical preaching where we completely invert the design of Scripture. Can you notice the difference? And this might seem subtle at first, but I'll challenge you to think about this in the week ahead. Notice the kind of preaching that uses illustrations from our everyday lives to help get us into the biblical drama, to help us illustrate with a word picture how things work and it sweeps us into the biblical drama. And then there's the kind of preaching that starts with the biblical drama so that it paints a canvas, you know, it paints the bigger canvas of my life. So rather than giving an illustration of how the biblical world works, we start with the biblical world and project it onto the bigger drama of my life. Right? We start with the story of David and Goliath, and then it turns into the much more compelling story for us of the five smooth stones of raising positive children in a negative world. Okay? It's completely upside down. Completely. Illustrations serve to point to the bigger drama, not the other way around. The Bible doesn't flash the floodlight on me and you. Me and you flash the floodlight on the story that God is telling. We still do this today. We get it upside down. We invert it completely. And these food and cleansing laws of the Old Covenant are terminated in Christ because they were not an end in themselves, but were designed to teach a lesson about holiness and separation. And so properly understood, even these laws were pointed at the heart of man to show that the, the godly operate differently than the pagans around them. And so the food or the customs in themselves do not make a person dirty. And this is especially true in the case of the man-made tradition that wasn't even part of the Old Covenant system. In verse 12, the disciples seemed concerned about the fact that the Pharisees were offended by Christ. And notice how Christ didn't go on an apology tour. Remember, any time today someone gets offended by something, the offender, so-called, uh, issues an apology and it's always the same. I don't know where that came from. That's not who I am as a person. Right? It always goes that way. Well, where else did it come from? <laughs> Those words came from you as a person. Okay? Jesus isn't going to play this charade. He's not playing this game. Rather, he goes back and points to his earlier teaching that we saw in Matthew 13, 24 to 30, about the wheat and the tares. And he's comparing the Pharisees to the tares in the field. He's saying, these guys aren't real believers. They're not planted there by my father. Okay? These are weeds, and they're, they're going to get uprooted, but now's not the time yet. It would be too disruptive if we uprooted them now. Just, just let them be. Let them be. God will deal with them at the appropriate time. It would be too disruptive. But eventually, everyone here is going to fall into a pit. Both the false teachers who led these people astray and the people being led astray who are giving a platform and an opportunity for the false teachers. They're all going to head to a pit, so just let them be. God will sort this out in due time. And then finally, he says, 
Matthew says in verse 15 and on. But Peter said to him, explain this parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And perhaps Peter has been so surrounded by these customs that were common among his people that he failed to see the difference between man-made customs and biblical law. And he's so confused that he assumes Jesus has just spoken in a parable. But if you're reading this, this isn't a parable. This isn't actually difficult at all to understand what Jesus is saying. But I think it runs against Peter's tradition so much that Peter assumes this must, there must be a hidden teaching here that I'm not understanding. And Jesus, no, no, it's really that straightforward. This isn't a parable, Peter. I'm going to give you knuckles on the head again. You're still not catching on, but I love you. But boy, are you short in understanding. Okay? So Peter's so confused that he asked for this to be explained. And Jesus does explain it further. Basically, meat and bread and hand washing are just that. It's just meat and bread and washing hands. That's it. They're just things which can be used for the glory of God as well as for the corruption of sin. And so the dividing line here is not about stuff. It's about the heart. Food and drink goes into your mouth, goes through your system, and is expelled. It's excrement. That's it. It can't touch your heart. It's just excrement. And compared to your human heart, human excrement is not at all dirty. It's just biological stuff. It's not filthy compared to the human heart. But that's what's truly filthy. What comes out of the mouth does come from the heart. Whatever the heart is full with comes out in the forms of words and behaviors and actions. And that's the excrement which is truly dirty. The heart is what defiles a person. And so to make friends with the sin that is native in your heart defiles you. To set God's law aside for the sake of your tradition defiles you. To walk in externals while feeding sin into your heart defiles a person. And it's been well said, and it's true, that the heart of the matter is the matter of the human heart. Christ is always preaching to the heart. And these Pharisees are legalists. They're externalists. They were men who tied up heavy burdens for people. And these burdens were heavy because they were just external rule-keeping that people didn't even understand. They made no sense. It's just law, and then more law, and then more law, and more arbitrary law, and no one even understands what's happening anymore, but there's no joy, there's no hope, there's no peace in this whatsoever. And it may be tempting for us to think that legalism is the error of taking God's law too seriously. But I want to ask... Is it possible to take God's law too seriously? Could that be possible? And absolutely not. It is impossible to take God's law too seriously. Legalism is not taking God's law too seriously. It's taking it not seriously enough. Because think, what does legalism teach? Legalism says, I can pull this off. Okay? Any law of God that Matt Plett can do is pretty trivial. It's pretty trivial. It's not taking God's law too seriously. It's lowering the bar to where it's humanly possible. It's treating it trivially. And it's saying, I can justify myself by my law keeping. That's not honoring the law of God. That's degrading it to say, yes, this is in fact a hurdle that humans can jump over. Legalism fails to treat God's law with the force and the severity and the holiness that it deserves. It assumes we can gain entrance into the kingdom on our own steam. And it reduces it 
by confusing it with petty man-made rules. And I think we've seen that in our own generation. I remember a number of years ago in a difficult discussion in church regarding the ordination of uh, women. And an older man in our community that I really, truly respected was totally in favor of this unbiblical practice. And the, the logic that he offered was this. In my dad's day, the minister at the time came to visit my dad because my dad had a motorcycle. And motorcycles were sinful in the 1800s. Did anyone know that? Okay. Motorcycles were sinful once upon a time. And my dad got a church visit because of his motorcycle and someone else because of his camera and so forth. And we all know those are petty laws. Therefore, let's just, we can't make any differentiation. So now there's no, there's no limits whatsoever. God's law is all meaningless because we fail to distinguish what's a human custom and what's the actual law of God. And I think we are in a transitional generation where we have moved from the legalism of our grandparents or our great-grandparents to the absolute laudlessness of our own day because we don't know how to distinguish what's a tradition and what's the actual law of God. And we have a generation of boomers who just said, well, how can we know? Just scrap it all. And we are reaping the whirlwind of that lawless approach to the Christian life. Okay? It is incumbent on everyone here to understand what is a tradition. Okay? And just because it's a tradition doesn't mean it's bad. It might be helpful for you. Okay? Okay? It might be but see it for what it is. And the actual law of God, which cannot be negotiated, refuses to be negotiated. The answer to legalism is not antinomianism, it's not lawlessness. And shallow theology is just as happy to take the shape of petty rules as it is to take the shape of trivial worship and lawless living. But Jesus closes this portion with a stroke of absolute genius. Notice how he doesn't say any form of, oh, God's law is tough and, and you know, we're all sinners and everyone gets a do-over. It's not such a big deal. Just try your best and God will give you mercy. And, and you know, everyone messes up from time to time. That's not Jesus' approach at all. Jesus came to fulfill the law and not abolish it. And that means that grace is always free, but it can never be cheap. Grace is free. It cannot be made cheap. And the Pharisees brought this fight to Jesus and they used the fifth commandment as their cover. They tied their man-made rule to the fifth commandment in an illegitimate way. And they tried unsuccessfully to condemn Christ because he wasn't doing anything against the fifth commandment in actual fact. And he goes on, Jesus goes on offense and shows them that their case against him is unscriptural. And not only that, but they are guilty of the very thing that they're accusing Jesus of. It's as if to say that Jesus would say to these guys, okay, you want to have a contest over God's law? You started at commandment number five. Game on. Challenge accepted. Let's start at commandment number five. You guys are guilty of there for all this Corban nonsense. You are guilty of commandment number five. And then you know what else is in your heart? Murder. The sixth commandment. You know what else is in there? Adultery and sexual immorality. Number seven. Theft. Number eight. False witness and slander. Number nine. Guilty, 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 guilty. You guys are guilty all the way down. How dare you? How dare you? Okay? It's what's in the heart. I'm not so worried about the garbage that comes out of your body. The garbage coming out of your mouth is the problem. There is a sick, diseased heart in there, and it needs a change. It needs regeneration. It needs rebirth. I'm far more concerned about the garbage coming out of here than human waste, which is just organic matter. It's not dirty at all. This is dirty. This is filthy. God hates this. 
if it's not made new. I hope you guys are starting to catch on, Pharisees. So Christ acquits himself of the slander. He goes on the offense and he proves them guilty right where they started and he works down the list. Guilty, 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 guilty. And we soon see that the actual law of God is fixed and unmoving. And so when we break God's law, you soon find out we actually can't break God's law. It's not going anywhere. You know what happens? We break against God's law. We shatter when we smash up against God's law. God's law cannot be broken. It just stays there. We break when we kick against it. Things in our heart defile us. And the problem is not with external stuff. The solution is not going inside and make more rules for yourself. The inside of us is the very thing that needs saving. And the law shows us this truth. And Jesus shows that in this exchange. The law exposes the human heart. And he shows that the sewage tank that is your digestive system is nothing compared with the sewage tank that is the unregenerated, unbelieving, proud human heart. That's the excrement which truly defiles. That's the sewage system that actually needs to be dealt with. And our petty little rules can't even start to touch and get down in there with the things that need to be dealt with. The only way to clean this dirtiness is for there to be a complete heart transplant. Our external rule-keeping will not do. Legalism from inside of us will not do. But the gospel, which comes gloriously from outside of us, changes the heart, transforms everything. When the heart is transformed, what comes out of the mouth and what comes out of the fingertips very soon starts to change. And I think we can all make application in ourselves. And just think, what, what are the sins that beset us? And I'm not going to mention names or make too many generalizations, but think. You know, are, you, are you an older lady who is using your senior years to gossip and slander and spread news? Are you a young guy in the dressing room whose mouth is just as filthy as everybody else's and whose behavior at the bonfire is just as contemptible as everybody else's? Okay? Are you a middle-aged man who's spending your life and your energy selfishly instead of serving your wife and your children? What are we doing? What are we doing? Are you dealing with the heart? John Newton has said that a minister's hands are strengthened when he can point to his people as living proof of the doctrine he preaches. Can that happen here? Are our lives living, breathing proof of the stuff that we find in Scripture? I hope so. I hope so. And to a large degree, I would say yes. But let's keep, pres keep pressing, keep examining. Is the root of the matter in you? Are you just careening between the ditches of legalism and lawlessness, making shipwreck of everything? Or have you received the new heart in Christ so that Jesus is transforming you from the inside out? Let's pray. Lord, you have shown us once again with your earthly ministry that you are not at all interested in smooth talk. You are not interested in window dressing. You're not interested in comforting us in our traditions. Lord, you came to unsettle us so that you could give us peace again. You came to afflict the comfortable 
and then to comfort the afflicted. Lord, and I pray that this morning, as we examine the own, our own traditions that we have received from our parents and our grandparents, some of which are good, some of which are wonderful, some of which need to be re-examined and some of which need to be discarded altogether. Lord, we trust your spirit to work as we examine our own hearts. What's coming out of our mouths? What's coming out of our fingertips? And is the root of the matter in us? Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom to differentiate between uh, what's actually in your word and what's just things that we are accustomed to. Lord, I pray that we would not uh, overcorrect. I pray that we would not look down on tradition, that we would not dishonor our father and mother, but that we would find a way to honor them even if they have given us traditions which are not biblical. Lord, I pray that we would correct that in our own lives uh, and that we would grasp the true biblical faith and pass that down to our children and our grandchildren so that the traditions they inherit do match your word and that they are well understood, that they are well explained, that we would grow generations of godly people here that have a deep hunger for your word, not just with window dressing, but all the way down to the bottom of our hearts. Lord, we trust your spirit to work and I pray that it would work especially this Christmas season as we think about what it is that you reunited God and man in the person of your son and started this mission of changing everything, recreating the cosmos. Lord, help us to be part of that recreation process. I commit this all into your name and amen. Please stand and sing with us.
I violated my tradition of turning my tablet the wrong way. <laughs> so I don't know where my start button is. What starts as an aggressive examination of Jesus quickly turns into a trial of the emptiness of man-made religion. Not only has Jesus easily acquitted himself of all wrong, but he has turned the tables and concluded a devastating case against the Pharisees. The standard of righteousness is not our own rules or ideas, no matter how new and exciting and compelling they may seem, but the unchanging word of God. The actual law of God has weighed the human heart and found it wanting. The excrement that comes out of our hearts is far more putrid than the excrement produced by what goes through the stomach. And as we grow in grace, the charge is to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. The renewal of the mind roots us in the eternal truths of God's word, and the transforming of our lives is made evident by the fruit of our lives and by the new things which come from our mouths. And I'll leave you with the benediction from 1 Thessalonians 5, which says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And go in peace.